0: times more after a year of it he ran away from the orphanage and begged his father to let him remain hidden in the cottage to which he had returned the tiny house no longer had the siren's lure of baking bread as it did when ma was alive but deteriorated into a home for rats drawn by the smell and taste of beer while he spent his time near the navy yard on the delaware river where street urchins hung out and picked up penny work doing laundry and running errands for the sailors. It was a highly territorial environment, where one used his fists to stake a claim to work a particular barracks. Wally fought his way to the barrack housing a Marine platoon. Some of the Marines had been heroes in the wars against Mexico and the Seminole Indians, there were shoes and brass buttons and buckles to be shined, and fresh hay to be changed in the bedding, and a pot-bellied stove to be fed and cleaned. And clean he did. The Marines had far fewer bedbugs than the sailors. Corporal Patty O'Hara, an Irish immigrant who had survived the terrible potato famine, became Wally's big brother and protector. Wally made it the best job in the Navy Yard. The Marines were generous with smokes, the currency of the day. On payday, illegal boxing matches were held beyond the main gates. Marines, sailors, shipyard workers, and visiting crews all had their champions in bare-knuckle pugilism. Before the men went to the pit, preliminary fights were held by kids for pennies tossed into the ring and an occasional nickel. For Wally Kunkel, at thirteen, this was a bonanza. After a particularly bloody match, there was sometimes as much as a dollar to be divided. Seventy-thirty. As a fighter, Wally Kunkel was cursed with a special gift. He could absorb punches and never go down. His talent, born in the alleys of South Philly and honed at the orphanage, won a lot of beer money for the Marines who bet on him. Wally ran out of competition his own age and size and had to take on bigger kids. Young Ironsides, the Marines called him, and Boilerplate and Kid Granite Jaw. Even Patty O'Hara was unable to get Wally to stop fighting heavier and heavier opponents. Then the inevitable happened. Wally took on an opponent thirty pounds heavier than him. He showed the courage of a little bull, but absorbed a fearsome beating. Corporal O'Hara pleaded in vain for him to throw in the towel when a sudden change of fortune occurred. Wally's opponent became so exhausted throwing punches he could no longer lift his arms or catch his breath. And that was that. After laying out the bully boy... Wally collapsed. Corporal O'Hara lifted Wally in his arms and carried him back to the barrack and declared his boxing career over. The Marines patched him up and carved out a bed space for him on the floor near the stove, where they laid a sack stuffed with hay for Wally's comfort. When the juvenile constable came looking, Wally was kept hidden and the Marines advised the constable not to come looking again. Well, they had pet dogs and such, but Wally presented a different problem. The platoon commander, Lieutenant Merriman, was a right fair guy, and, noting the men's affection for Wally, had some documents fixed up to state that Wally Kumpel was actually sixteen years of age, and he was sworn in as a Marine. At thirteen, he became a Marine drummer boy. Paddy O'Hara had lost his family, four brothers and two sisters, in the Irish potato famine ten years earlier. The sole family survivor, other than himself, was his sister, Bridget, who became a housemaid in New York. When Paddy was sixteen, he joined the Marines. Against all odds, Paddy had been a prolific reader as a child, and under his brotherly watch, Wally entered the world of reading and writing. There were always books and magazines circulating in the barrack, mostly about girls and sexual situations. There were also barrack readings of poems by Patty O'Hara, which gained an unusual popularity among his fellow Marines. By the year of 1860, eleven southern states had formed a coalition to preserve the institution of slavery. And threatened to secede from the United States if mister Lincoln was elected president. In November, Abraham Lincoln won. And as his inauguration grew close, an ominous cloud was descending upon the land. Southern states called up their militias. Southern born officers resigned from the army and headed home to organize the rebels' army. Wally Kunkel's platoon, Designated as the first Philadelphia Marines, was ordered from the Navy Yard and boarded a troop train that swept down from Boston and New York, taking on militia and reserve units at every stop. The train was met by dignitaries on stands covered with butting, and bands hustling up profound patriotic music and cheering citizens. The dignitaries spoke fierce language about the traitors in the South and women wept, and the newspapers blared headlines reeking of war fever. By the time the train reached Washington, there was no anger to compare. The pending war changed the way people saw the sun rise and set. All focused on this new specter. In Washington, all other forms of life had been numbed by war cries. March, 1861 Wally Kunkel was a drummer boy under the speaker's platform as Mr. Lincoln held his hand on the Bible, then spoke in words that reiterated the righteousness of the Union cause, and sent forth a surge of confidence in the northern states. Within the month, seven southern states seceded. The Confederacy demanded that the Federal fort guarding Charleston Harbor be evacuated. When Lincoln refused, Fort Sumter was shelled and captured, and thus began the great American tragedy. The zealots in the North demanded quick and decisive punitive action. The brazen Confederate act, they said, was no more than a dare. Quick victory was the demand— and the Union battered itself into a frenzy. It will be over by the 4th of July. Great time to hold a victory parade. The press wrote front-page editorials, and the generals and Congress promised instant victory. But Lincoln was not so sure. As he hesitated, the Confederacy and Union moved two forces toward each other mostly of untrained or poorly trained militias. Now that the armies were on the move to face off, the instant victory camp promised to smash the rebels and march on their newly declared capital of Richmond. End of war. The Confederate States, knowing the fight would come, had a more skilled officer corps and put the better force on the field. Despite that, Washington was in a state of premature celebration. Everyone knew exactly where the battle would take place. The newspapers printed maps of the coming battlefield. Congressmen, civil servants, and thousands of the civilian population of the capital packed picnic lunches, loaded their wives into carriages and omnibuses, and took to the turnpike, already clogged with troops marching to the front. Each side would field thirty thousand ill-trained, ill-equipped troops, commanded mostly by men who had never seen combat. Thirty miles from Washington, and a hundred miles north of Richmond, sitting in a gap of a northern Virginia mountain range, sat the town of Manassas, unexceptional except for the rail junction that went off in all four directions. For the Union forces to capture the Manassas Gap meant splitting the Confederate forces in half and opening the gates to Richmond. On green rolling hills overlooking Manassas, spectators from Washington...